Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Jeff Bezos and The Washington Post, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News, Sheldon Adelson and the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Billionaires seem to like to control newspapers. My guest today is one of them, Dr. Patrick Soon-Shong. He's the biotech billionaire who bought the Los Angeles Times and the San Diego Union-Tribune in 2018. The former transplant surgeon made his fortune by inventing a breakthrough cancer drug. Now he's trying to breathe new life into one of the nation's largest newspapers. In May, he hired Kevin Merida, previously at The Washington Post and ESPN, to take over as executive editor of the LA Times. Their goal is to turn the paper into a, quote, engagement engine. I wanted to understand what the hell that means and how he thinks about the mingling of money and media, COVID, and much more. Dr. Soon Chong, welcome to Sway. Happy to be here, Kara. So we have a lot to talk about, but first we're going to discuss the ownership of the LA Times <laughs> okay. and a bunch of other things going on in journalism. So in 2018, you bought two newspapers. Um, what was the impetus for doing this? Because a lot of people feel media is a headache. Well, look, I, you know, I've, it's hard to believe it, but as a kid uh, in South Africa, I sat at the printing presses like five days a week, uh, capturing the paper and running around the city. And that was how I got educated, frankly. When I got to this country and the American dream, and you know, everybody talks about the American dream, we, we lived the American dream and we had the opportunity to look at the newspapers. And um, when the Times got taken over by Michael Farrow and the group, he reached out to me uh, during the time when they did the takeover. And I said, look, I think I want to bring really technology into the paper because the only way we can actually breathe life into this industry. And I made an investment in the company in Tribune. That's how it all started before the opportunity arose for me to actually take over the entire paper. But the initial impetus was to understand how we can actually transform the paper into an engagement engine with next generation technology. Yeah. So let's talk about the LA Times because there's been some turmoil there, five editors in four years. So what's going on? Well, the five editors in four years was before I took it over and it exactly was the, the issue, right? So the first thing I did is I knew nothing about newspapers. And the most important thing was me to find some seasoned editor. And Norm Perlstein, as you know, uh, was that person. I know him very well. And so Norm and I, we ran around the country and I tried to learn as much as I could. The first thing I needed to do is to completely build a content management system. The second thing I did, we did, was to actually build a modernized facility. So we took a building uh, in El Segundo and uh, had a deal with the city council that in three months I needed to, to rip apart seven floors and build a completely modernized facility of a newsroom that I've never seen in my life. And then um, we built a studio in less than six months. 
made a deal with Spectrum and launched LA Times Today, which was a TV show, um, which has now won several Emmys, and ensured that our podcast called Dirty John could be made into a TV show. So it was the beginning of the beginning of saying, you know, we have an opportunity now to really stretch our wings. And, and really the idea is engagement, entertainment, information with journalistic integrity. Okay. What do you then call what you're doing? Is it a newspaper? What is it now? I, it is a newspaper because you need journalistic integrity, but it's also an engagement engine. You need something. I mean, frankly, watching the news all the time is maybe too depressing. So we are the largest book festival in the nation. We have a food test kitchen. So the idea is, well, how do you engage somebody? Now, more importantly, engage people that's on Facebook, Twitter, and, and Google, um, TikTok. So how do you cross that chasm? And we're not a New York Times, we're not a Washington Post, we're not a Wall Street Journal. I think we are a California-lensed organization. What are we? We're probably a media brand. A media brand. Because you've said engagement engine a lot. I don't think that trips off the tongue very well, but (laughs) the concept is an interesting one, um, which means you want to grab, because engagement is going on elsewhere. It's on Facebook, it's on TikTok, as you mentioned, and everywhere. And Snapchat, which is from Los Angeles, for example. I mean, Evan was my intern at one point. (laughs) Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, Evan's a brilliant kid, and he he came into our lab for science, and um, so... Look, the, the whole economy now is about engagement and, you know, the platforms, and you speak a lot about it. And I think they've created this monopoly, but doesn't mean we can't compete and be disruptive. One of the things I recall rather um, significantly was at the Wall Street Journal. Um, they had a meeting with Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs pointed at someone who said, we're going to compete with you. And he said, there's no way anyone good in technology is going to work for newspapers anymore. And so you're screwed. And he said this to a room full of newspaper people at the Wall Street Journal, which I enjoyed immensely um, because I had been screaming that same thing. How do you imagine you can compete technologically? How do you do that when they are so far ahead of you? I mean, you're very wealthy, but you're not wealthy compared to these companies. You know, it's not about wealth in terms of capital dollars. It's wealth in terms of human capital. So if you look at my company, Nantworks, we've been in the technology business. So we've built, you know, I have close to 100 data scientists that's been working with me for a decade. We've launched the machine vision with P&G and Dreamplay. It was the number one app in augmented reality. We run 300,000 fiber miles of layer one fiber. So... Ironic. So you know your tech. <laughs> you know your tech. And Is that what you're saying to me? Not only do we know our tech, uh, we are tech-driven because that's what I need to do to actually solve the biology of cancer and the biology of COVID. All right. Can you glom that, I don't know the medical term for it, onto media? What do you have to do to put into the, the DNA of this culture to make them think like that? Is that a, is that a significant challenge for you? It was, um, and it's better now. It, um, we launched the three and three world competition on the street outside the LA Times <laughs> so that you could get coverage on the three and three basketball. And US won the first three and three basketball in El Segundo, sponsored by the LA Times. So we, we did little things like that would take them out of the constriction. It's cultural change that we here to. I don't say the word entertain lightly, but I don't mean entertain flippantly. Uh, I really mean engage, inspire. 
I was even talking to Fortnite and to Riot Games, uh, where right next to the LA Times, we were building potentially where we could have the esports games running. But you also have to get your staff to understand that and be able to think that way. So you chose Kevin Merida as executive editor. Why did you pick him? Well, he had all the right ingredients and the chops, right? He came from Washington Post and ESPN, The Undefeated. And most importantly, I think we thought exactly alike. Um, There was a mind melt that we are not limited by constriction. You know, a podcast, music, books, book publishing. And I said, Kevin... The first thing I want you to do, obviously, is make sure that at the end of the day, journalistic strength is still the core. We cannot and will not walk away from that core. But now you need to expand revenue, whether it be events, whether it be, and work very closely. And then the third thing I may put under Kevin, we just had this discussion now, is the LA Times studio. So, and obviously we have the podcast, so that the executive editor may have, again, a a broader role tied to the business side. Um, Was he your first choice? There was a story about uh, you playing basketball with Dean Baquet of the New York (laughs) Times. Just curious if that happened. Uh, Yeah, we did. This this was during when I was looking at Norm Pilstein. So this was pre-Kevin. So Norm came along as a consultant. And I met with Dean Baquet. I'm Dean was coming to Los Angeles and he said with me to play basketball and I said, fine, we'll play horse and if I win, you're going to have to join. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, it didn't work. And he won. <laughs> I'm not sure. It didn't I'm not work. sure. No, it didn't work. <laughs> anyway, the, the bottom line is then Norm and I sat down over breakfast and the, the LA Times at that point is that it's most fragile. You know, I'd inherited, literally at that time, within weeks, they'd become, before I inherited them, a union. So now we had to deal with a union um, issues, which I had no idea what to do with. I had to build a new building, put them in. I had to actually build a new infrastructure. I need to do all these other things physically that we had to bring. But we need leadership that could take the reins that the newsroom would um, respect. And I got to tell you, without Norm Perlstein, um, we wouldn't be here today. Um, many people, because of their alumni, and Norm was able to reach out, and as you said, hire people like Julia Turner, Sh- Shani, and Sewell. And, um, well, now Sewell's leaving, correct, to be editor of the Texas Tribune. Yeah. He was the editor of the editorial yeah. page, Sewell Chan. Why couldn't you keep him? Uh, Sewell needed to... St- I love Sewell. Sewell is a, a treasure. Um and, um, you know, he was obviously also in the running. Um, and and he wanted to be executive editor. Now, the Texas Tribune is a non-for-profit, and we had a long call. And, and I think uh, this is something he has to get out of his system. Or in his system, perhaps. <laughs> oh, in his system, right. And, and, and hopefully he'll be happy just with a phone call, he'd be back at the LA Times if, if we could get him back. So w- does that give you an opportunity here? And the editorial job is quite a big one. It's it's one of the top yeah. key editors, and it has your point of view of what you want this newspaper to be. What are you thinking of right now for that job? Well, t- uh, Terry Tang is going to assume that role. She was the uh, deputy editor, and she's, uh, she was on the op-ed page. I, I think this is a very important job. Unfortunately, the editorial pages seem to me more political pages, and then people mistake 
political views as my views. So I think, again, I want to find that where this editorial page is a voice. It needs to call out to, you know, positions of power. And it may even, at some point, be a dispute with the newsroom, which is fine. But so we need somebody with strength of conviction, but have empathy and open uh, to hear voices of all. But to be not afraid to write about stuff that may be controversial. So are you going to play a big role in that point of view? You said you, it's, people think it's my point of view. Are you going to impose? Some owners do that quite a bit. Uh, I, I think I may. Uh, I, I, in fact, I do it sometimes. I mean, when the Asian hate came about, I think it was, you know, I, in fact, I pen letters. Now, this is where the conflict arises, Carrie, because I run a biotech company and i got to be very careful that people don't think it, I'm using the papers as self-serving. So I created a thing called a second opinion like an MD, like a doctor. And my first, second opinion was the science behind the coronavirus. And it is an opinion. And I think everybody's allowed their opinion, including myself. So that means conservative voices, liberal voices, you want all of them. Correct. Human voices. Human voices. Okay. Did you make any funding commitments to Kevin uh, to about w- coming there in terms of more funding to put in to make this? Well, we're actively doing it, right? We're building the test kitchen. We're building the LA Times studio. We, we've just added another whole building. About, so we're committing literally tens of millions of dollars beyond the $500 million to acquire the company, close to another $150 million. So, no, and this is in less than two years. So, no, no, look, I mean, the lens of LA Times is going to be a unique lens. Um, New York Times wants to be out here. Washington Post wants to be out here. That's great. And Wall Street Journal wants to be out here. But nobody could have the lens of Californians who live here. One of the things that's interesting is a lot of tech companies don't want to talk about themselves as media companies, and yet they use terms like Mark Zuckerberg recently used the metaverse, <laughs> and everyone gets their news from them, good and bad, but they do very little editorial. So how do you look at them? I look at them as hiding behind the fact that they don't want to be media, called media. So they won't have any responsibility to do exactly what you just said, right? Um, There's no responsibility of real news, fake news. And it's really just a monetization engine using you as your data. People need to recognize that. And there are good things about these platforms. Uh, And now the JCPA is the only way, I think, where a New York Times, a Washington Post, a Wall Street Journal, and the LA Times could potentially act together and negotiate against these giants. Look, the Google search engine before, there was um, a quid pro quo when Google said, put your news on our thing and we'll give you the subscribers and you'll go back through the newspaper to get the rest of the news. It doesn't work that way today. Um, An article never comes back into your platform. So there's no real quid pro quo. How do you fight against that? Because you sort of have to become them in the way you're talking about words like media platform. How can you do it differently? I don't think we're going to become them. I think quite the opposite. I think we have the responsibility with journalistic integrity, where our job is to ensure that there's real news and the entertainment engagement. It may be branded content but or content and opinion, and you recognize the difference between opinion and news. You can't see that on their platforms. You can't differentiate that. So, no, I don't think that's our goal. In this world of capitalism, I don't think regulation is going to help or should be the first approach. 
I think the JCPA is an opportunity for us to act together in a capitalistic way where we go and create competition and have fair uh, reimbursement. So so that's where I so, see it. So far, okay. it's been tech people winning on most things with journalism. It's taking the advertising, they're taking online advertising, they're taking subscribers, right. everything else. So should Americans be worried about journalism, particularly local journalism? A lot of them are being bought by billionaires and hedge funds. They should be worried. Um, when you look at local journalism in California, the amount of newspapers that have been destroyed and gone is devastating in, in the country, frankly. I don't know if they really realize what's happening. And, you know, unfortunately, this next generation, they don't get the news from newspapers. They get the news through Facebook, right? And they get the news through Google and Twitter and, and TikTok. So I think it could be a downfall of informed citizens. <laughs> so, and so, no, the answer, they should is be it, Is it a bad thing to, to have wealthy people like you or others own all this stuff? Yeah, I don't think you can pigeonhole. It all depends on the person, right? I mean, and, and I can't speak on behalf of the Adelsons and the and the Aldens and the, the Murdochs and the Bezos, etc. I can't speak what on behalf. What is the personal reason for you? My upbringing as a person in, grew up in apartheid. You know, I grew up in apartheid. Uh, without the newspapers, I would personally wouldn't have been educated, frankly. I read the newspapers as part of my education. And even today, I, I read the Daily Maverick in South Africa. So I would be remiss then if I didn't ask you then about what happened with the Tribune Publishing. Um, there was a takeover of Tribune Publishing, the company that owns papers like the Chicago Tribune and Baltimore Sun by Alden Global Capital. This is controversial because this particular hedge fund is known for slashing newsrooms. I think they're the killer of newsrooms. They have various names. You had 24% stake in Tribune shares, and you could have blocked the deal, but you didn't. What happened precisely? Well, what happened was way before Alden, right? I bought the LA Times from the Tribune. It was the weekend of Super Bowl. I got a call from Mike Farrow and that, and the, and that board, the current board, and said, we're about to shut down the LA Times and push everything to Chicago. Uh, we're going to shut down the Washington Bureau and push everything to Chicago. You have about 48 hours with no due diligence to buy the LA Times for $500 million. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was Friday. I was running a conference in a hotel with a bunch of doctors. I took a room upstairs. We negotiated through Saturday. And I still own 24% of the company. And on Sunday, uh, we signed. But then on Sunday, they said, I forget what condition they made with regard to my stock. Uh, they would lock up my stock, couldn't do anything, etc. with it. And I said, no. And on Monday, we signed the deal. So that was how I bought the paper. The 24% remaining shareholding was... In the Tribune. In the Tribune was an opportunity. I, I hoped then to say, okay, fine. You now have $500 million of cash and, you know, you know debt, etc. Please now, let's work together. I will spend the money on my side and integrate all your newspapers on the platform. And they refused. So I disconnected completely from that. Um, or organization and spent all the effort on as what we just talked about. I came to realize there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars that's going to be needed just to keep Los Angeles Times and San Diego Tribune alive. So I said, look, now it truly is the responsibility of this board. Uh, I can't be responsible for Baltimore, Florida, <laughs> uh, Chicago Tribune. Uh, personally, uh, if I stop this deal, 
So I quite literally said, I have to focus on Los Angeles and San Diego. And obviously, um, and literally uh, didn't didn't vote. I just said, it's up to the board. You didn't vote. You didn't yeah. vote yes. You didn't vote no. I, you didn't abstain. Correct. Should that have been a no then? I said, look, I'm not going to get involved in this. Karen, it was a very complicated thing. Whatever it is, the board, I wanted the board to make that decision, whatever it is. So you didn't want to block it, though you could have. Did you Did you worry about the repercussions for you at the Times if you didn't block something like this, especially no. dealing with the unions? Well, well, uh, obviously, but I'm not the U.S. government, right? Uh, and the resources that we have is I needed to focus on the LA Times and San Diego Tribune. So I'm not sure who would argue with that, but... If they did argue with that, I'm sorry, but that's all I could do. So essentially, you're saying I couldn't save them, and I'm I I I, I don't quite know what to say. There's some point where you do make a stand and say you can't do this, and especially with Alden Goldberg Capital having the reputation it does, um, you might have stood up for it. You might have said no, but you you felt the current owners weren't going to really do anything with your money, as you said they had an agenda. Uh, it seems like you have a theory of their agenda, but they weren't going to make it better, and so any port in the storm? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's a little more than that, right? I think there should be enough uh, civic responsibility in Chicago, enough civic responsibility in Florida, civic responsibility wherever these Baltimore. And obviously, as you know, there were certain billionaires and multimillionaires. So to be fair, it should be really the responsibility of people living in their community. I live in California. So, so I can't personally be responsible for Florida or Baltimore and Chicago. I think one of the issues is the papers like the LA Times, Chicago, I would put the Miami Herald in there, are critical to national journalism. I mean, some people say the plight of local newspapers is a national problem in some way. So one of the things is the issue of newsroom diversity. How are you thinking about that issue at the LA Times? It needs to represent the community, right? And so the community in LA, as you know, is probably one of the most beautiful melting pots of the country. So we took over, and obviously with my personal upbringing of apartheid, it struck very much home, not only when Black Lives Matter, but also the Asian hate and everything else. So I penned a letter directly addressing that. But words really don't matter unless you actually follow it up with action. And we have now one of the truly most diverse newsrooms in the country. Uh, as of June 2020, we have a masthead that's majority women and person of color. Think about that. Um, it's easy for people to go look at. So it's not only just action of hiring the right people. It's having empathy and realization of what you say matters, words matter. I myself, for example, I had a long conversation with President Ramaphosa, and we were just revisiting my history when I was an intern at the Jansburg General Hospital. And I said to him, I, I went there to volunteer during the Soweto riots. He says, no, no, no. It was a Soweto uprising. And it's incredibly correct because these were kids that were being shot because they didn't want to speak Afrikaans. That's not a riot. So these are the kinds of words that journalists unconsciously may write uh, and perpetuate. So how do you get that down into the newsroom? Because a lot of owners try not to be too you know, hands-on, although some do, you know, Rupert Murdoch certainly does. How do you look at your role? Do you think of yourself as hands-on in that regard, saying you're using this word, maybe you should use this word? No, not down to the word, but to the culture. I mean, I think top-down, in fact, I don't get involved with anything written, which is part of the newsroom. 
I may get very involved when it gets to opinion or second opinion and healthcare. And I feel so strongly about COVID and what we're doing wrongly in the country. All right. So last question on news is, from your perspective, could you pick three stories you think it's critical for the LA Times to dominate in? Well, being the voice with regard to diversity and racism, we really need to be very, very important about climate change. Uh, If people don't realize we're close to the tipping point, if not already at the tipping point. And I think we have an opportunity to really take your well-being and health seriously. So diversity, racism, climate change, and health. We must have a voice in the politics of California. And then we should take the lens from the West Coast. I think we should look at innovation. So I don't know if I can limit it to three stories. I noticed you didn't say Hollywood. In a different way. When I talk about Hollywood, we've launched Nan's Studio, which is making movies in a different way with virtual production, and LA Times Studio. I think we're going to become part of that, actually. Believe it or not, we'll become maybe even a production facility. So you're losing money right now, correct, with all this investment? Or do you not look at it that way? I do look at it that way, and we are losing money, but it is an investment. It's an investment, so you don't mind (laughs) losing some money. Yeah, well, I do mind losing money, but it is an investment. We have to lose money in order to grow for the future. Do you have a limit? Do you have a price, like this far and no further? I'll call you when I hit that. Okay, all right. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Anna Winter, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Patrick Soonshong after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. My name is Thomas Gibbsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Before he started buying newspapers, Soon Shang was a medical doctor. Lately, he's been using that background to develop his own experimental COVID-19 vaccine. While he advocates that people get the vaccines that are already available, he's also working on a T-cell-based booster that he claims could reduce the risk of transmission. 
I say claim because the science still has to be fully vetted. Let's move on to COVID. I know you have a medical background. During the pandemic, the report citing LA Times insiders that you were burying yourself in lab research and ignoring the newspaper. Talk a little bit about your interest in COVID. Oh, I'm so frustrated, frankly, because let me give you the COVID history, right? And my interaction with the Trump administration and now maybe even this current. So five years before COVID, we've been running vaccines in cancer patients. So we've been taking a DNA vaccine and we were generating what we call T-cells against cancer patients with the National Cancer Institute. Because I saw that as the future for cancer, the thing called the natural killer cell, these T-cells kill and recognize cells that are either bad with an infection or bad with a cancer. It works the same way. So when COVID hit, we had built and had access to three massive manufacturing plants that made all these cells and our adenovirus. So I got a call from the Trump administration because they knew what I did. And I started sharing with the fact that antibodies block the virus. But I can predict, and I said to them in January 2020, you need to have a vaccine that generates not just the antibody, but a T cell that kills the cell that is infected with that virus so it cannot transmit this infection to others. That's number one. Number two, this has to be a global because nobody's safe until we're all safe. Because this virus will use human beings to create mutations. So I spoke to members of the administration and members of the FDA, and I was one of the eight that got elected into Warp Speed. And the Warp Speed program was to take initially the non-human primate model. And my view of the Warp Speed program was everybody throws the vaccine into the non-human primate model and then see which vaccine is the best to prevent transmission, not just infection, but transmission. And then um, once Slawi got pointed, and the world changed. Because? Because the decision was made, we're going to go only after the antibody vaccines. Right, rather than what you were, what you were pushing. Correct. What you were advocating, excuse me. <laughs> and pushing, and screaming, and pleading, yeah. and begging. Mm -hmm. So billions of dollars went into, but worse than the billions of dollars, it then sucked up the entire supply chain. Now, all the bags and all the solutions and all the media to make um, these DNA vaccines went into, you know, the antibodies. The antibodies. And now, you know the companies, so I don't need to name all the companies. Both DNA and RNA, the same. And I said, what'll happen, sadly, is that you'll have the South African variant and then the Brazilian variant and UK variant. So this is where I see what I call the arrogance of dogma and where power is in the hands of people with, I can't attribute agendas, but rather than give up, and this is actually, by the way, came into the whole discussion about why didn't I participate in the Tribune? So I put tens of millions, frankly, into building three more plants in Los Angeles and started building the T-cell vaccine. 
and then started the phase one trial in the United States. So you are now backing a COVID-19 candidate that you think will be a universal booster. Is that correct? Or am I mistaken? That is correct. That? And in fact, I'm now in phase one, two, three in South Africa. Right. And my goal is I'm going to have 50 million doses for all of South Africans. So obviously 40 to 50 million are not enough vaccines. It may save South Africa. What is going to happen now? So my resolution was to go back home. And so we're setting up infrastructure in South Africa. We've been approved to go to phase one, two, and three. We'll be the universal boost to every S vaccine, whether it be the Johnson Johnson, the Pfizer, AstraZeneca. And we are to set to prove that we can not only block transmission and eradicate this thing. Yeah. So there's a debate about the need for this booster shot. The World Health Organization is calling for a moratorium on booster shots, at least until the end of September, so let the rest of the world catch up on the infection itself. What's your take? Think about this. There's a variant that's worse than the Delta variant now with 20 mutations. So until you get a vaccine that actually kills the infected cell through a T-cell, we'll be chasing our tail. Now you'll see none of this in our newspaper <laughs> because I can't break this in our newspaper because I'm the owner of the LA Times. So I do this second opinion and I do this videos of the second opinion and maybe even subconsciously why I did buy the newspaper was to have a place where we can have an opinion and maybe scream out to the world, please listen, and this is an opinion, but it's an opinion based on science. Are you considering requiring vaccines for LA Times employees who return to the office, or are you just saying that's futile? No, 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 I'm absolutely uh, requiring that. So you're going to require employees to be vaccinated. The Washington Post certainly did. We 100%, we really made that policy. And your feelings about masks, they need to be on? You have to wear a mask, absolutely. Wherever you are. And socially distant. Yeah. So this is going to go on. I think it's inevitable. I think we've actually messed it up so much now that we've lost that chance. To beat it. Well, we, I don't say forever. What do you say to people who won't get the vaccine? One, we have to figure a way to get rid of this disinformation. To then appeal to their concern for their own family, if they do have, for the grandchildren. And three, never mind to themselves. Because getting vaccinated not only protects you, but really protects your fellow man, your family, the rest of your family. And then thirdly, getting vaccinated now is important because it does mitigate death. You know, Gavin Newsom, when um, I spoke to Gavin very early on in the epidemic, on the pandemic, around February and Kobe's funeral. This is Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. And he made the really courageous decision to shut down California. We saved, I think, tens of thousands of lives, or he did. And now he's facing this crazy recall. Will he be recalled? I hope to God not. <laughs> we'll put up an uh, editorial uh, soon to say, that's ridiculous, what's going on. Imagine what you could do with the $200 million that's being spent now. So where does COVID-19, where does it go next? I think we're going to have an endemic now. Instead of just a pandemic, it'll be endemic. This virus is one of the rare ones, goes into your heart, your pancreas, your kidney, your liver. We have no idea of the long-term effects, the long-haul effects of this virus. So it's virus against man. It literally is now at the stage, it's like climate change. 
uh, you've depressed me to no end. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so before COVID, your focus was on cancer, as you noted. In 2016, you launched the Cancer Moonshot 2020 to conquer cancer in four years. It's been five years now. So how close are you or anybody else to a uh, cure? The group had to change its name after a lawsuit. Anyway, <laughs> Moonshot. Talk to, talk, talk to me a little bit about now, that. You want to talk about that crazy lawsuit? You say how crazy this country is? We're trying to cure cancer and we're fighting about the word moonshot. Isn't that crazy? It is indeed. Okay. Now, let's go about truly the substance of the matter. Right. The cancer drug you invented was called Abraxane. Yeah. And the reason I invented that drug was very early on in my career, I recognized. So I was a pancreas transplant surgeon at UCLA. And I was also doing this operations called Whipples for pancreatic cancer patients. And in my transplant patients... I was giving them drugs to suppress the immune system so the organ didn't reject. And I cancer patients, I wanted to actually have the immune system to work as hard as it could so it could kill the cancer. And I had this unique lens that says, oh my God, um, we're giving steroids to our transplant patients and we're giving steroids to our cancer patients. This doesn't make any sense. Then I looked into it and I said, the high-dose chemotherapy is wiping out the cells I'm trying to protect. Then I looked into it even deeper, and I found that this thing called micrometastasis, when you come in with what you call stage one cancer, you're curable. And they give you a high-dose chemotherapy, and you have metastasis, and she says, oops, you're no longer curable. Sorry, you go to hospice. And that scary idea hit my head was, could we as physicians and the National Cancer Institute be inadvertently responsible for creating metastasis. And I said, nobody's going to believe me. I can't prove this until I prove this. So because I invented Abraxane, I owned Abraxane, I went to a doctor at UCLA and I said, counter to the business of using high-dose Abraxane, which will sell more, I want you to use the lowest dose of Abraxane possible, not to kill the cancer, but to waken the tumor. The reason they avoid the immune system is that they hide. They hide from the T cell, they hide from the natural killer cell. And they put out signals on their surface that all of a sudden your natural killer cell and T cell said, wow, that's a bad cell, I'm going to kill it. So what if we use chemotherapy not to, to kill the cancer cell, but to waken the tumor and now activate your T cells and natural killer cells and have what your body has been given, God-given gift, to kill this cancer as an outpatient? So I went to the FDA and we had this meeting with Vice President Biden and I brought in the head of the FDA and I brought in Peter Mo And then finally, when I met with Vice President Biden... You met with President Trump also? I met with President Trump. <laughs> you know about stuff, do you? <laughs> <laughs> stuff. You know, I'm a newspaper person. You might meet a few. They work for you. They're irritating. Well, it's interesting. He called me um, and said, would you come to Bedminster that Saturday when Mitt Romney was interviewed? I said, where's Bedminster? Yeah. I flew in with my wife. Did he offer you a job? He did. What job was he offering? I can't discuss that, but he did. and I Defense did. secretary? <laughs> what? No, in healthcare. Uh, he offered me a job and, you know, he wanted to know what I wanted to do and... He offered me a job and I turned it down. And I said, listen. Why I, didn't you take it? Because I thought 
I would help better on the outside than I could on the inside. So Secretary of Health and Human Services, that's the job, I, I'm not going to say what job he offered me. Okay. Right? But, but, but okay. he offered me a job right. and, you know, I'm probably one of the few that turned it down. But in retrospect, would I, would I have made a difference? Would I have made a difference during COVID? I probably would have been fired within weeks. You know, I clearly would have stood up. So would you like a job in the Biden administration? If you would say that we're at this position where we've got to do something right now to fix this issue around COVID, which could go on. And you said it's going to become endemic, which is terrifying and painting a very dark picture. Um, would you want a job in this administration working on health care? I doubt that I'd be offered a job because I'm actually speaking um, against the policies that's now being instituted, right? My level of frustration is such that, frankly, I don't think government is the place for me to be. I think I'm too disruptive. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> so I think the way for me to do it is to find a country that we can make an impact on and change the course both for climate change, which I'm working on, and healthcare. I think that country for me now is South Africa. Are you going to buy a paper there? <laughs> no, probably, but I'll support the Daily Maverick. All right, Dr. Sun Chung, this has been fascinating. I'd love to talk more to you about the COVID stuff. What's so maddening to me, it was completely preventable. Well, you know what the problem is? Yeah. Humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can use one of my sayings, intelligence has its limitations, but stupidity is infinite. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned a really good one yesterday watching an Australian show is, am I speaking too fast or do you listen too slow? <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Or right, let me give you one more one from journalism. You know this one, right? If your mother says she loves you, check it. That's an old one. No, I didn't know that that's, one. <laughs> you need to. You own a newspaper. If your mother says she loves you, check it. We're on that note, we're going to end. All right, bye. Thank you so much. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza, with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Sabu-Ro, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Bustock, Kristen Lynn, and Liriel Higa. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, by your mother, who says she loves you, but you should check it. Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>